On episode 17 of Out of Play Area, we invite our first producer onto the show, Jesenia Cisneros, a lead producer for Brass Lion Entertainment in New York City, working remotely from LA, California. She's been on a wild during her student industry, hailing from Queens, New York, coming through esports, being a content mod at Xbox, working in QA, and eventually finding her happy place as a producer at the Pokemon Company and more to where she is today. We talk about the impact that seeing yourself represented in the leadership and studio executive team has on yourself and your team, as well as being able to bring your authentic self to the job day in, day out, and how to be an effective producer while working remotely and more. Please welcome from New York City, Queens, repping her China Equatoriana roots, Jesenia Cisneros. Let's start the show. Bienvenido, bienvenue, welcome to the Out of Play Area podcast, a show by video game devs for game devs, where the guests open up one-on-one about their journey, their experiences, their views, and their ideas. No ads, no bullshit. Join us as we venture far out of the play area with your host, seasoned game designer, John Diaz. I have the White Claw Hard Seltzer Natural Live, 100 calories, gluten-free because I'm basic and bougie. Spiked sparkly wine with a hint of natural wine. I'm glad you called this out because this is definitely the summer drink, right? It makes me feel like, oh my gosh, we're so close to summertime. Let's get it. Ooh, ooh, that sounds like summer. <laughs> summer in a bottle. Salut, santé, Jesenia. Salut. Yeah, I definitely bought that because the weather was real nice up here this past weekend. And I just like barbecued. It oh, was really good. And I like, just like laid in my hammock, drank white claws and passed out. It was so good. That sounds like summer to me. And then I had my friend over because she's vaccinated as well, too. And I'm vaccinated. So it's like, finally, we get to like hang out. So it was really nice. <laughs> Which one did you get? Team Pfizer, House Pfizer. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I trust the German engineering, man. I got Pfizer <laughs> as well. I guess that just seems to be what's readily available around the Pacific Northwest. Yeah, I definitely didn't seem much Moderna at all. Definitely a lot of Pfizer. But I remember when I was getting the vaccines for my parents up in New York. Gosh, that felt like I was looking for Pokemon. Because it, it was so long. Like, it literally took me like a month or two. That's when they would like just open it up. And I remember I had like six tabs open on Google. Yeah. And just refreshing every single day, trying to get appointments for both of them. I felt like I was looking for legendary Pokemon. But you got your parents sorted out. You found them a slot. Yeah, I did. But man, that was a lot of fucking work. Oh, can I cuss here? No. This is a come as you are podcast. If you've had a day where you feel you need to let it out, then I'll be right there with you. Oh, love it. Love it. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So no, it was a fucking journey to get them those appointments. And what's funny is like, once I opened the gate, to my parents are like, yeah, I'll help dad look for something. And then it became like, oh, you don't have to do that. But because I offered, then it was a daily check-in of like, did you find anything? I'm like, yeah. oh, now we care. Okay, fine. <laughs> so they were on me like every single day. Like, no, nothing's changed from yesterday. <laughs> it's funny how that is. It's my parents are the same way, right? It's like, oh, no, no worry. Not to preocupe. Mm -hmm. I don't want to bother you. Yeah. And then as soon as, soon as you're already doing the thing, then it's like, kick the feet up and now they want to participate right now they're like micromanaging and stuff yeah that's how my mom maybe it's a latino thing or something i don't know but it's, maybe that's how they, my mom is especially like oh no te preocupes no necesito eso and then as soon as i do it it's like 
micromanaging. And I'm just like, I need to go away. <laughs> I got this. <laughs> I wonder if that's like low key training for what we do in games. Because I definitely have a few coworkers that are like, no, 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 don't worry about this. Or keep pushing something off or putting something off. And then as soon as you're working on it, then they want to be involved. Like, no, 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 it's not like that. It's like this. Just let me, let me get in there. Let me get in there. Yeah. <laughs> We've been trained from mm -hmm. the beginning. This is our colleague. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure it's like this throughout all development, but all I've ever known is games. So I see that a lot. I see it very often. It's very common. So I, I think you're onto something. Where are you coming to us from? Where are you seated out of right now? Right now, I am in Seattle, Washington, the beautiful Pacific Northwest, but I shall be moving in a few months and I'm going to try that SoCal sunshine weather. Oh, is that going to be your first time living in SoCal? Living there? Yeah, it is. What part? I'm thinking Burbank area, so around there. That'll be my first time living over there, so I'm really excited because I've been here for like 14 years. Time for a change. Time for a change. And also, like, I just want sunny and warm weather, like, all the time. But every once in a while, when I start thinking about moving, I get anxiety for it. You've been in Seattle for 14 years. You're going to make the move to L.A. You're going to embrace that SoCal sunshine, as everybody should, at least at one point in their lives. And you are from New York City. I wonder what your expectations are of L.A. Oh my gosh. So I'm a Queens girl, represent Queens. I know it's not going to be the same as New York. Like I know I can't expect that city life, but I do expect more diversity than what I have right now. And that's what I'm excited about, where it's like a little bit closer to the diversity that I had back East, mm -hmm. where it's like more brown people and people like me and like more diverse food and culture that I can be surrounded by. So that's kind of what I'm expecting. And then, of course, the gorgeous weather all around. So I expect rooftop parties at some point in the future. Oh, yeah, that's the thing. There's a lot of parties over there for sure. I mean, these days with the amount of sun I get, you can easily confuse me for a Caucasian person. I don't get enough <laughs> sun, but now I'm going to start getting out there and getting my color back. But oh, I sympathize with you 100%. You got to go out of your way to find more yeah. brown people and people of color to find the spots and see where to go and get some bomb ass food and where the music is right and things like this. Yeah. And also, like, I expect better dating experiences in L.A. That's what my hope is, because the dating pool here sucks. <laughs> I can't speak to that. And I don't want to like put any preconceptions <laughs> on the L.A. dating scene. Right. I think every city has its. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? But that's exciting. That's exciting. I think it's great for creatives overall, you know, like a change of scenery, a change of weather. It might lead you to do kind of the best work you've done in your career. So that's that's exciting times. Do you have like a timeline when you will be down there? Yeah. So I'm thinking like September of this year. So mm. It's coming up pretty quick. Like we're already halfway through May. So that's insane to me. So yeah. So looking at September when my lease is up so I don't have to pay double rent. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That'll be good. So you can like blow out the summer because I think a lot of people here in Seattle, right? Seattle summers are beautiful to everybody oh my out God, there. Yeah. You know, that that's the mistake a lot of people make is they come in the summer and they're like, <laughs> oh my God, it's so beautiful. I want to move here. And then it's like yep. you get sold a false bill of goods because it's only like that for like four or five months. <laughs> yeah, I definitely came here during summer the first time. <laughs>
I do like how geeky the city is. I'll give mm-hmm. them that, right? Like, there's a lot of culture around board games, role-playing games, video games, VR, tech. And then you have kind of the nature outdoorsy vibe that comes together, you know, like with the water, the lakes, the boats, the mountains, the skiing, all that. So it's it's a really cool formula, but there's definitely something to be said for what happens when you get to warmer, hotter weather with sun and more diverse crowds, you know, so... That'll be yeah, interesting. I'm really looking forward to it. But like you said, every city has its own thing. So I'm just like, whatever. But I'm living my best life, so I don't care. <laughs> I'm super excited, Jasenia, because you are the first producer to grace the mic of Out of Play area. And so I'd love for you to break down where you're at, what's your role, what you're doing right now. It's an honor to be your first producer. <laughs> Amazing. So I am currently a producer over at Brasslight Entertainment, which is a brand new studio that got founded within the past couple of years. So essentially, we're a studio focused on creating like original fictional universes that center mostly on Black, Brown, and other traditionally marginalized characters, cultures, and stories. So we're super diverse and inclusive environments of all backgrounds. And we really want to change what the game industry is. Because I've been in this industry for about 11 years now. And the studio that I'm currently at is the first time I've worked at anything like this before. And so it's like really focusing on all the marginalized voices and like actually creating a new culture that hasn't existed before. And this is like the first time I actually have people of color that are founders and are in charge. And I also have a woman in charge of the studio and they're a woman of color and more precise. I've been at the studio for a little over a month and I'm still like in la la land because I can't believe that something like this exists and it's amazing. And so one of the projects we have is Quarter Wolves, which is a narrative podcast. However, right now I'm working on an unannounced RPG anime style game. And that is all I can say. <laughs> Ooh, stay tuned, yo. Stay tuned for uh, big announcements from Brass Lion. The industry and the people are not ready for it. Okay. Okay. That's exciting. I think the last time we spoke getting ready for this show, you were just starting out. You were kind of getting, you, you were yeah. hitting the ground running. So this is great to hear how you feel after a month. It's always the honeymoon phase, right? And then you start kind of getting into the thick of things and in the flow. And so it's really cool to hear your perspective on what it's like to see yourself represented in that executive layer of a studio. I don't think that I can nudge on that enough. I would love for you to speak more about what that gives you as a Latina who's been in the game industry for a majority of the career, where you've come from and where you are now. How does this energize you in coming to work, in do working on what you're working on and knowing that it's, this is how it's structured when you look up, down, left and right? Yeah, no, that's a really good question. So being in here for about a month now, I stumble a lot when I'm talking about it because sometimes there's no words to describe this feeling because it's so brand new and I've never done anything like this before or been a part of something like this before. And that's not to say like the previous places I worked at were terrible. Mm-hmm. You know, I worked on other large IPs like Pokemon and Minecraft, you know, stuff like that. But there's a different layer to what we're building at our studio and I'm getting to be part of it from the ground up. So it's just seeing that they take the diversity, inclusivity seriously. We take that seriously from the beginning with how we build our culture, how we build our team out, what our values are from the beginning and how we continue to scale up to make sure that every person that we bring in share those same values because 
that's what's super important. And I think a lot of other companies have sometimes failed in that aspect where they hire people and it becomes very homogenous. Mm-hmm. And then and then towards the end, they're like, oh, we need diversity and inclusivity. And it's like, you can't really implement diversity, inclusivity and equity when you have a bunch of white people at the top and the same amount of people like taking charge of everything. You can't really change anything where the team structure. It's like you need leadership to change. And it just becomes a little bit, I feel a little bit harder to actually compete with that. So the fact that at Brass Lion, we're doing it from the beginning and like being very conscious of who we bring in, what we're mm-hmm. building how our team structure is, what our team culture is, what our values are, is super important because as we scale up, these values have to stay intact. And so for me personally, I feel for the first time ever, I don't have to prove myself anymore. Oh, So that is like such a relief. So many times, especially being a woman in the industry, being Latina in the industry, I feel like I get underestimated so often. Or that you have to work twice as hard. Yep. I get underestimated. I have to work twice as hard to possibly prove myself and my worth and that I'm good enough or better than my counterparts. And for the first time, I don't have to do that. It's like they already know I'm a badass and they're like, here you go. And it's like, what's the only person I have to compete with myself is myself now. Like I have no one like holding me back in a way, if that makes sense. Totally. There's always all these barriers and other places I work at. Now it's like, oh, the only barrier is myself now. Because I'm able to be my authentic self and bring my whole true self to this. That's beautiful. I mean, I unfortunately, I've never worked at a place like that. And when I hear you and other people that are coming on the show, like Elaine, talk about Brass Lion and how it's structured, it does sound extremely compelling. It's just a wonderful narrative and an experience for people of all backgrounds, right? It's all about empathy, right? So just put yourself in the shoes of someone else and recognize that. You look to leadership and when you don't see yourself represented, that has an effect, right? That has an effect to make you wonder whether or not you're cognizant of it. It's like, hmm, can I get there? Right. And so for you to be in a situation where you don't even have to wonder, you see it already and you're like, oh, this opportunity is available for me, for my colleagues, for anybody that comes in here because it's from the ground up from day zero. That's fantastic. You know, there's something to be said for that, because I know for a fact a lot of corporations and a lot of teams are trying to get there. That's where they want to be. They want to head there. And they're in that situation of like, okay, they got to work backwards because they didn't start there. And that's going to take a while, right? Because they have to learn it. And it's that double-sided situation of like, well, why is it up to me to teach you how to set it up to be the certain thing that we need to bring our best selves to work kind of thing? I want to help, right? I want to do what I can, but... But I can't, you can't have me educate you and like do all the heavy lifting. It becomes the F you pay me kind of scenario. Like, (laughs) (laughs) Hell yeah. I think that's so awesome. I've felt that way in my career as well, where it's like, was I hired because I was Hispanic? And do you know that I'm probably getting paid less and doing twice the work and and loving it, right? I'm loving it. I'm like, yo, yes, this is an honor. This is a privilege. It's just amazing to look at your situation, feeling recognized, feeling like you've earned where you are and you're recognized and seen for who you are and what you bring to the table and know that that's good enough. And that, in fact, kind of like fuels you to be even better as opposed to the other way with the cattle prod kind of thing. Yeah, no, absolutely. Because I'm sure there's other people that can relate with my story. But so often in the industry that I've been with the proving myself, 
and having to deal with microaggressions or having to deal with like implicit bias, you know, all of this, like it all plays into a role, plays a role into how successful you can be in an environment. Yeah. And almost I've had to work twice as hard in my brain, like mentally, because you're constantly like, okay, I got to focus on my work to do a good job. But then also there's this other thing that's happening over here and I have to prove myself that I'm good. Mm-hmm. Oh, but then this other person is undermining me. So now I have to deal with that. So, and it's just like very tactful. And so I feel like you can't be your best version of yourself. Sure. And so that's what I feel with like brass line is that I can be the best version of myself where it's like, oh, I, all of those barriers, all those issues that I've had in the past, they are gone. Like I'm considered part of the leadership team. I'm building the culture. I'm helping with the hiring process and bringing it in and building out with the culture and our team structure and processes from the beginning. And that is amazing. And, and I could be my myself. And that's something I noticed actually within the past month mm-hmm. is that I've been noticing the part of myself come back and flourish where, and it's one of those things like you don't even notice that you're doing it anymore because it's very subtle and you just get used to it. But the code switching, that's a real thing. Yes. And also the way you dress and present yourself because it's like, oh, she's too hood. So obviously we can't take her too seriously, you know, and stuff like that. And so now, since I've been on this team for like a month, a little bit of my New York is coming out again where I'm like, (laughs) oh, okay. You know, I'm like dressing up the way I want to again. Mm -hmm. And this was a good habit to like kind of pause just because it's an expensive habit, but I'm getting my sneakers again. Are you a sneakerhead, Jasenia? It's okay. It's okay. I may or may not have put a bid on some Jordan uh, and I'm waiting to see if I get it. Which ones? Man, I got the Jordan retro. They're like the purple one. One retro high court. Oh, the one. Damn. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Little Air Forces. Yeah. Ooh, I, we like purple around these parts. So yeah, it's a nice so color. It's my favorite color. So as soon as I saw those, I was like, I need to put a bit on it. it <laughs> usually don't pay that much money. And I'm like, man, that is bought. Like I've been really good the past 10, 11 years, like pacing myself with sneakers. And now like. Since I've been working here, I'm like, oh, I can like do whatever the fuck I want again. And I'm just like, yeah, if I wear these sneakers, no one's going to bat an eye on me. You know, it's normal. It's funny because I've worked for like non-sneakerheads and I've worked for sneakerheads as like leads and directors. And there's an instant connection that gets you in, right? Like if you're a non-sneakerhead boss and I'm coming to you with my whatever sneakers I have on, right? Like I think of particular, I had some like LeBron James joints or some like duck boots and it catches the eye and there's a little nod of respect there and you're kind of in and then all of a sudden that kind of trickles down into be like, yo, come check out my design because I know you got good taste kind of thing. It's funny how that materializes in geeky game development culture. So rock your sneakers proudly, Jasenia. I think that shit is super (laughs) important. Yeah, I'm very excited and I hope I win the bid because I don't want to bid higher than I already have. But then I also bought, and that I'm waiting for this bid right now, I also purchased some Air Force One as well with like a custom made like blue and black and white. Okay. Yeah, I almost went down a rabbit hole one day and I was like, okay, I got to stop. I got to (laughs) stop. Do you like Adidas at all or any of the Yeezys? I'm more of a Nike person. Yeah. And what about the Air Force ones and like, like Jordans? Yep. <laughs> classic. Classic. I have, I don't know if you get down with foam posits, but that's where my affection lies is with foam posits. I just love that material. They're like super strong. They don't get scuffed easy and they're super eye catchy, right? They just seem futuristic. So I like those. 
Anyway, we've never I've never talked about sneakers on the show. This is amazing. <laughs> it's a fantastic. I don't want to get carried away. Yeah, I could talk sneakers all day. <laughs> yeah, I want to get back to game development. You being a producer, you mentioned some amazing responsibilities in being able to be a part of the leadership, defining culture, implementing processes to make sure that this is a part of everyday work. Could you break down for people that are wondering like, hey, what does a producer actually do? What's the day-to-day of a producer look like? Yeah, so a lot of people don't understand production. And then, so it's not an uncommon thing. Like even my own family, they still don't know what I do. Sometimes they call me like the Chandler of the family. Tell me more. Tell me more. Yeah. So as a producer, my job is to work with the creatives and the technical people, like the engineers and the creative, to get them aligned on goals and to ship our product from point A to point B to the public. Okay, let me let me throw that back to you and make sure I got it. There's the engineering and there's the creatives, which you can literally draw the line in the center and be like left brain, right brain. Yeah. Right. There's like, hey, this is what we can do and this is what we want to do. And there's always a clash in the center. Yep. And so you're saying that you facilitate those conversations and help literally define the goals that will get both parties to making the best game possible and, and hitting a date. Yep, pretty much. So I'm essentially a cat herder. I work with like the creatives, the engineers, any like product owners, stakeholders, make sure like we're thinking about the best game possible that we want to build, making sure that we're staying true to the vision, generating a timeline together and our features, like what are we building and why? And when do we want to ship this out and making sure that all the pieces are aligned so we can actually ship on time for our players. And sometimes, I keep the train going, but also I'm also on the train and putting the tracks down as the train is going so it can keep going. So I like a little that. bit of all of that. <laughs> that seems like a high pressure, high responsibility role. If you were to get sick or go on vacation, it seems like you would come back to chaos and like Mad Max type of setup. I would say a little bit, yes, but also I would argue no, because if you're a good producer and you have a good process, you will not come back to chaos. Nice. Yeah, because if everyone depends on you solely to get anything done, then you're doing something wrong, it's my opinion. But, okay, so if you're doing your producer role right, you can take your proper two, three-week vacation and the project will still keep on target, on track. No delays. I I like that. That doesn't sound as intimidating now. Oh, but it is. Okay. All right. Fine. Fine. (laughs) <laughs> it's not an well, easy job <laughs> well that's what i'm saying right it's it's one of those like if you're good that's what it is if you're not as strong then yeah you're more bottleneck and they're more dependent on you right yeah that's where you separate kind of junior associate producer from senior executive producers absolutely i've always said this like i think anyone could be a producer okay but i don't think everyone could be a great producer Ah, there's some nuances there. Yeah. It definitely takes a certain personality type, a lot of learning. But yeah, anyone can track things because we do a lot of production stuff in our day-to-day lives. Like, oh, my doctor's appointment is at this time. So in order to reach my appointment on time, I need to leave the house by this time because there's traffic. That's simple things of like production right there. Like figuring out that and like, or cooking a meal. It's like, oh, I need to like cook this, have dinner ready by this time. And I have all these three dishes to make. So based on that, I'm going to start this one here because this one takes the longest and I'm going to do this at the end because that's the shortest amount of time and then my dinner will be on time. 
that's production in the lamest term. So that's why I mean, like anyone can really do it, but to be a really good and great producer takes another level of skills, I think. It seems as though to do your job effectively, you need all that information. You need to know, hey, how long is this going to take to boil? How long is this going to take to cook, right? How long is this going to take to cut up? So talk me through how you go about getting that information from your team. That one's a hard question for me because my process changes every studio I go to Mm -hmm. and every team I work with because I'm a strong believer that there is no one-size-fits-all process. Right now, I can talk closely about Brass Lion because I'm kind of figuring out the process as we go right now. Yeah, you you just been there for a month. You're learning the personalities. So yeah, it's definitely learning the personalities of everyone, seeing what motivates them, how they work, what's their communication flow, because everyone has a different communication flow and understanding. And so essentially, there's design documents, which is like, here's our high-level vision. This is what our game's going to be. Here are our pillars. And then to kind of like, if I wanted to build an actual roadmap of like, okay, this is a timeline of this. So now the next step is we need to make sure everyone is in alignment. And so that's where I like talk to everyone where it's like, okay, you're in charge of this high level vision. Maybe we need to start up a strike team. Like that's something I've done on my studio right now where it's like we have a strike team that's focused on one part of this game. One pillar. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And I try to give them more autonomy in what they're building because when you give someone ownership, I feel like they're more motivated to get the job done rather than doing something for process sake. Because that's where I've seen a lot of producers kind of fail sometimes where they're like, they just put process in for process sake and it's actually not fulfilling anything. And so you have to like figure out why are you implementing this process? Does this actually improve anything? Because as producers, our job is to amplify everyone's performance and kind of like a support role in Overwatch. <laughs> like, yeah, you're, you're like sometimes playing tank, you're playing Mercy, you know, whatever. You have to like switch between those. It's mostly just talking to everyone and be like, okay, and then setting up meetings and planning sessions. Like, this is our goal. Let's talk about the document. Let's make sure everyone's talking together. Are we all in alignment of it? Okay, cool. Once we get into an alignment, what I have is like the lead of that strike team talk to their team and be like, okay, this is what we think our goals should be. And for our next milestone, let's say. Mm-hmm. And then we can meet together and like really break out the feature. So I go for a more collaborative approach of like, what should we be building for this experience that we want to give the player? Yes. So we start like very high level and like the upside down pyramid and like work our way down. So it's like very high level vision. Okay, yeah. cool. Well, for the next milestone, what do we need to build? We need to build X, Y, and Z. Mm-hmm. Okay, how do we get there? By building these features. Okay, now let's actually figure out how do we build this feature. Then you go like to user story, the task level. So that's kind of like my approach. I start very high level and big and funnel all the way down. That's a great visual. And I think that sounds like a very effective process. Start big and small and very specific, finite, concrete deliverables. Get those wins, right? And then build that momentum on the team and then rinse, repeat kind of thing. And it also depending on what part of the pipeline I'm in, I change my process as well too. So if I was like an early concept phase and pre-production phase before I go into full production, my structure and process changes from each one because I you need to make sure you have that fluidity as well because... Mm-hmm. You need to find a balance where in the beginning you're giving everyone enough creative freedom to build and really brainstorm and think big pie in the sky Yes. before you like go into production. And it's like, okay, now we have to like really tighten in on what we're building. We can't like do too much exploration anymore. And then as we get closer to ship, you have to tighten it again even more. It's like, nope, we're in ship mode. So it's that's another thing like producers have to change their process throughout the development cycle. 
that's a great call out. And that's something that you cannot underestimate enough, right? Is the the team or creatives, you give us rope, we're going to take the whole damn thing and we're going to yep. look to <laughs> do all, blow the scope, any chance we get as disciplined as we can be, as senior as we can be, right? To be like, hey, eyes on the prize. This is what we got to get to. The nature of what we do, fun things are going to pop up and be like, oh my gosh, we never accounted for this. And playtest is showing that this is awesome and we got to go deeper on this. So it's great that you called out that you recognize that different phases in the production, right? <laughs> require different amount of leniency or tightening up. Yep. I'm curious how you handle these discovery moments on a project that are like unallocated or unplanned for to be like, oh, we need a new level to teach this feature, right? If that happens at all. Oh, that happens on every project that I've worked on. One of the things I really like to do is I like to get the team as quickly as possible to a functional build that we can play because once you actually have it on the vice and you get to experience it, now you're able to actually get that feedback that you weren't able to get. So like my main goal is always to try to get it working in the build as quickly as possible so we can have more time for play testing and polish and iteration because unlike software where it's like you can ship and it's functional, yay. Games, it's about an experience. What is the player going to feel? And so you can't, it's hard to account for that. And so that's where I usually add more time into the polish phase and I try to get the build in as quickly as possible. So we have a lot of buffer time for polishing and discovery. And so... That's kind of my tactic, what I do. And then there's mm -hmm. other instances where it's in production, we have many levers that we can pull. You have this triangle where it's like, okay, do you want it good? Do you want this fast? Or do you want this cheap? You can't have all three. You have to pick two of them. And so sometimes the way production can help with that is like, I've done this before. It's like, okay, can we get more money to get more developers? Yes or no. Sometimes we can, but I will say on the flip side, adding more devs does not make the thing go faster all the time. And that is a common mistake that people probably think where it's like, just add more engineers to it. It's like, no, it's, they're not going to code faster. It's actually going to slow it down because now you have to think about ramp up time yes. to teach the new people. And then there's too many people in the build and the depot, like moving assets around and it just becomes a bottleneck in that way. Yeah, there's some more bugs find their way into the depot and then that, that adds a whole other structure yep. <laughs> to it. Yeah, and what I've seen is definitely that ramp up time usually equates to taking senior time to yep. train the individual. There's always a cost. <laughs> yeah, there's always a cost and there's always this expectation on the senior to be like, hey, senior, you're going to do your job at 100% mm -hmm. and you're still going to have time to like ramp these people up. And that's extremely unrealistic, but it's never accounted for. I know it is super unrealistic. That's kind of what I lean towards when things are unaccounted for. Because let's say you are going to find things in place that's like, oh, no, we really need to change it. There are going to be some times that we need to change something. Or maybe like at our studio, especially since it's focused on like ground stories, marginalized stories. It's like, are we being respectful of this culture? You know, there's mm. things sometimes that we're going to have to change at the last minute. It's like, oh, no, that was bad. And we're going to have to do it. And so those requires conversations with my leadership team, the founders, essentially, because we're small field. How big is the studio? We are right now at about 19, I want to say. Oh, that's a good size. That's yeah. a good size. Yeah, that's like very flexible, agile, mobile. Everybody has skin in it. Decisions get made from all angles and you can kind of yeah. like implement. Yeah, yeah, that's pretty sweet. Yeah, I thought like back in end of March and I was like employee number six. So Damn, okay. <laughs> 
Yeah, we've been growing real fast. <laughs> yeah. So those are conversations we have to have. Like if there's something in top, it's like, okay, the best advice I can give to producers is asking the why. Mm. Because so often we get caught up in like timelines and burn rates and like, we're like, no, 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 we don't have enough time. We have to get this done. And it's like, no, sometimes we just have to take a step back and ask why. Because sometimes there's a reason that we need to add something, you know? Yeah. Because once you ask the why, you can help facilitate how we get to there. Because a designer would be like, we need to scrap all of this. This is terrible. We need to do this and this and this. And this is how we're going to build it. But if I ask the why, they're like, oh, we just want the player to be able to do X. Oh, we can do that for you a lot cheaper than what you just gave us as an example. And this is how. And so that's how your production is able to rely on those levers. I'm like, okay, how do we give you what you want while also making it still good experience, but cheaper costs? Or, you know, mm -hmm. like I said, you can either have it good, fast, or cheap. You can't have it all. <laughs> Yeah, no, that Triforce is very real. And it's funny to me because there's a lot of times where it feels like people fool themselves into thinking they could have it all. Yeah, it's like, no, you can't. For those listening, like your iron triangle is what they call it, a project management triangle. And there's also like in game in the middle, if you were to put a dot in the triangle, that's your quality. And depending on where you move it, that's where your quality of the game is. <laughs> <laughs> nice. I like it. I want to know. How do you get into this? How do you get into production? Or how, how did you get into production? Mine is a very interesting story. So it is. And I don't think people will have the same experience I did. But so I've always been a gamer. And for me, it was Halo 2, essentially, that changed my life. Oh, my gosh. It changed mine, too. Yeah, because it's like I've always played video games. But Halo 2, for me, was the first time that I actually experience multiplayer with people that like all over the world like that's was something new for me because that um, was the first xbox live yeah. game yeah like i mean yep. when i say xbox live i mean xbox live as an online service and yep. then halo 2 letting you go online and match make and play competitively yeah because i think i did a little bit of that with like ddr but it was halo 2 which is different for me and so i actually like played so many hours on that game and my grades suffered tremendously in college because of that. What were you studying? I was studying biology because I wanted to become a doctor. Hey. Yeah. So I was on that route. I already knew what I was going to do. I was going to be an anesthesiologist. I've known that since like the fifth grade because it's a thing that's like, I need to make money and it's a first gen Ecuadorian. It's like, oh, okay, this is what I'm doing. I'm going to be a doctor. And so... <laughs> There's good money. It's a prominent career goal and there's a clear path to it. That's what's up. Yeah. And I think that's what it is, is that there's a clear path to it. And I think that's why. Unlike video games. Yeah. Unlike <laughs> video games, but I want to like change that. That's why I think so many people have different ways of how they got into the industry because at least now it's becoming more mainstream. But back then I didn't know about it. And so when I started Halo 2, I got very involved with it and I got competitive with it. I actually competed at LLG. I even had my own MLG team that competed in Halo 2 that I started managing because I was like, I'm just going to start doing this. I had no idea what I was doing, but I did it. You went from a pro gamer competitor on a team to the manager of the team, or is that one in the same? Is that you can be a player on the team and manage it? I started going to MLG. My first one was like in 2009 in North Carolina. And 
I got introduced to a lot of people there. And that's how I got more involved with the the esports back in the day gaming scene. This is in its infancy, right? This is when MLD was starting. And I can't tell you how many pro gamers I knew back in the day, let alone female pro gamers. Yeah, I was surrounded by a lot of dudes. <laughs> <laughs> Just like the video game industry. Yeah, a lot of dudes. But yeah, no, I started like doing that and I noticed that all these other clans were out there, like the PMS clan. There was also KSI at the time. What was your team's name? We were Team Bombshell. They're fine. <laughs> I wouldn't say we're like super big, but it was just, it was a, it was a hobby I had. Um, <laughs> I mean, you've got to be better than all of us normal. I mean, not normal, but all of us like yeah. amateur players, <laughs> you know, Xbox Live Warriors, if you're in MLG. Yeah. I'm not as good anymore, though. I will say that. If you don't practice, you definitely lose it. (laughs) I would love to face you under whatever circumstances motivate you, because I suspect that as good as I think I am, the level between someone who's played it competitively and the level of someone who's played it for fun at home against his friends and online is still like the length of the Grand Canyon. So you <laughs> may think compared to other pro gamers that you're not good, but compared to amateur players, you still kind of obliterate people. I'm sure like the muscle memory would kick in after one or two sessions. We'll see. We'll see. Maybe a few more white claws. Uh- <laughs> Man, I, I got to shout out all the homies in New York. We used to go by the name tribal and we, we would throw down hardcore on all those maps. Damn it. What was it? It was like an icy one. And the sword would spawn at the top and you can kind of drop down and they had like a rocket launcher. Fuck is the name of that oh, map. Is it that large map? No, man. It was good for like 1v1, but it was also good for like Oh, are you talking two. about Midship? No, not Midship. Mid- Mid- oh, oh my God. Midship. Lockout? Lockout. Shout out to Lockout. Lockout it is. Midship is a big one. I was a big Midship fan. Oh, I love Midship. But Lockout. Lockout is so good. I love Lockout. (laughs) Because everybody thinks they're good on Lockout. So it was always kind of a neutral ground of like, see me on Lockout, son. I'd be like, hi, yo, bring it. Let's go. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, good memories. Oh, my God. Lockout is so good. I love the rush for Sniper and Sword and Rocket. Like everyone immediately. They have all those key weapons and Shoddy. Right, shoddy yeah, for shoddy. sure. Oh my god, yeah. It's a lot of close quarters. Yeah, it was underneath sniper tower. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So you could always drop down. You can get yep. the sniper, drop down, get the shoddy. So you got both of those. And the plasma while you're at it. Oh, this is bring me back. I have to call out that we live in Seattle. So whoever designed that fucking map at Bungie needs to be here somewhere somehow. I'm gonna say it on this episode talking to you that I'm going to find this person or this team and I'm going to bring them on. We're going to invite them and we want to talk about designing lockout. That's pretty powerful for a big generation of Halo players. Oh yeah. I bet I know some people. (laughs) Yes. Help me track them down, please. All right. So getting back, I'm sorry. I'm sorry to get off on the tangent. No, no, we totally need it. We totally geeked out. It's totally fine. You are a pro gamer in MLG. Halo 2, you're owning and pwning. You moved to managing Team Bombshells. Where does that lead you now? So then I started doing a lot of pro bono stuff because I was like, oh, I'm going to get more involved in the game industry. So I started doing pro bono work with like other gaming companies that one of them actually started up back in the day. Chastity Rosari actually had a company back in the day. She's a super powerful Puerto Rican woman. So I started doing all these like pro bono stuff and then also like 
get involved in the gaming community sites, like forums. And then I also started writing game articles. Like I am all over the place. Wow. And so where did this come from? Like where did that urge or energy come from? Because Halo 2 was so big for me. And then like being around those people and seeing that they're doing this as a job. I was like, oh, shit. That was my realization. Like I can do this as a career. What specifically? Just working in games. Okay. Yeah. So at, at that moment, I didn't know yet what. So you were not making money as a pro gamer? No, no, no. I was not at the level of like Walshy and all of them getting the big ass checks. Yeah, help me understand as a non-esports athlete. I just competed in them and like the competitions, but I was never like sponsored or anything like that. Because I would be led to believe that the money comes from the prize pools, but I guess the majority of the money comes from sponsorships. Yeah. Ah, okay. Got it. Thank you for setting that straight. So yeah, I was like, people are doing this as a career. And so I just want to get into the games industry. So I started researching and getting more involved as much as possible, learning as much as I could. And then I was like, you know what? I want to work at Bungie. The makers of Halo. That makes total sense. And so I quit school. I quit my job. Your your medicine degree. Yeah. Oh my goodness. I quit school. I quit work. And I moved across the country. To Seattle. Where was school? Where were you going to school at? At that time, I was at Penn State University. Okay. Then, and then you, you went to Seattle because Bungie's based in Seattle. I'm sorry. They're based in Bellevue. Yep. So yeah, that was like back in 2007. I moved, came over here. I didn't have a job, but I was like determined. And I just, I did some odd jobs here and there while I still continued looking for people and networking. And then I went to my first PAX in 2009. Tell me more about that, man, because PAX is kind of what brought me to Seattle my first time. Give or take, my buddy moved here. But it's definitely one of those things. If you work in games or involved in games, PAX is a big reason for you to come to Seattle. Yeah, no, it was amazing. And I don't know if it's because I've been doing this for so long, but PAX is different nowadays than it was back then. It has a different vibe and I can't like quite put my finger on it. It just feels different. So you're talking about 2009, right? That was your first pack. Yeah, it was magical for me. Mm. And that feeling has mostly gone away for me. And I, and it's probably because I work in the industry now, but I still enjoy packs because now that's the way I get to see all my friends at the same time. Yeah, I mean, same reason like people look forward to GVC and, and E3s yep. and things like that. It's like, okay, we're going to connect with all the buddies. We're going to catch up, see what we're doing. And maybe there's a sweet project that we can jump ship on kind of thing right exactly (laughs) (laughs) so no that's why like PAX was so magical to me like that was my first game convention that I've ever been to and so I was all wide-eyed bushy tail and like oh my gosh at that time I was part of this female gaming group called Gamer Chicks they were a great community because I learned so much from them and I got to meet amazing friends from that group and because of that group are some of my closest and best friends to this day so yeah I went to PAX she was showing me around and I got to meet more people. And then I just happened to meet a, mutu- a group of mutual friends of hers where it's like, oh, hey, they work at Xbox on the Xbox Live enforcement team and they're hiring. I was like, okay. And so I gave my application, my resume, and I interviewed and I got the job right away. What was the interview like? So the interview at the time, I don't know how much I can say, but it was different because the Xbox Live enforcement team is in charge of monitoring the live services for Xbox Live and making sure everyone following the terms of use and all of that. And so it was my job was to help moderate all of that and complaints or anything like investigation that came through. 
does that all come from like player feedback? Like whenever I get poemed by some player, I'm like, oh, that motherfucker was cheating report player. Is that yeah. the type of stuff? Okay, cool, cool, cool. Yeah. And so it was, I don't even remember what my interview process <laughs> was anymore. That long ago. I do know that there was a lot of disclaimers of like, hey, you're going to see some stuff. Are you okay with this? You know, that kind of thing. And you're like, yo, I'm from New York, Queens, man. This is a Monday. Weekend. Yeah, this is a Monday. <laughs> That's copy. So I got to ask, right? Because I don't know how many people I'm going to get that have experienced that on the spectrum of like, this is a lot to handle a process and like, all right, this is just, you know, somebody complaining. What, what was the what type of things you were dealing with? Or was there anything kind of like too much to handle? Oh, yeah. All I can say without like giving too much away or getting in trouble by Xbox is I've seen a lot of things and I've heard a lot of things. And I've also had to deal with a lot of modders. Well, I mean, like, it's not too far-fetched when you look at Twitch streams and the type of language exactly. that people look at use. Twitch streams and then just multiply that and think about images also. <laughs> images? Remember Uno back in the day? Oh, oh. yeah, because we had the webcam. I forgot you had the Xbox yeah. webcam. Oh, my gosh. That's all I will say. <laughs> oh, I forgot this was a thing. I have a cousin who was a big fan of Uno and the webcam, and, and I never understood. I, it, was, it wasn't it was my jam, right? I'm just like, yo, I'd rather be playing Halo. But it, he would definitely talk to me about it as a, as a social connection thing. Like, people get yeah. on Uno, and you connect, and you have a good time. Wow. There is definitely something called Uno after dark, and there were definitely moments where things should not go into that part of the body. <laughs> Yo, Jesenia, you're taking me back, man. Xbox Live has come a long way. We've come a long way as an industry, as an online console, <laughs> internet, player, safety, privacy, making it uh, family friendly. Jeez. Yeah. Wow. One versus 100. <gasps> was this like, like a game show kind of thing? Yeah. Whoa. And that everyone talks about every Xbox, bring it back, you cowards. <laughs> <laughs> Oh my goodness. Damn. This is fantastic. Good times like over a decade ago. Jeez. Yeah. And so, yeah, I, I got my job there. And then from there, I went into QA. And my first game that I was a tester on was Fear 3. And then I also worked on Batman Arkham City. So this is worth highlighting is the fact that you transitioned to QA. How do you find that, right? How did you find getting in on kind of the development side of things? What skills did you learn? How was it, all that? So for me, I got into the QA side of things very non-traditionally. So when I was on the Xbox team, I was a contractor at that time. And that's super common in the games industry. And so I had to take like a 100-day break at that time. And the agency I was working with, they gave me a temporary job to kind of fill that gap. And I was like, oh, this worked out. But then I didn't get called back to that job because I outgrew the position. You were too good. <laughs> I was too good experience and at that time i was really upset but now i'm like oh this makes sense yeah they were right and then they're like well we're actually starting the qa team internally do you want to be a part of it and i had like two choices to make at that time because at that time i was looking at this position which will pay me shit or i was looking at the customer support position with the tweet fleet back in the day with the what the tweet fleet is that for twitter so xbox has Twitter support back in the day, they were calling themselves the tweet fleet. Because it was integrated early, yep. early on back then. 
Yeah. Damn. So it was was it similar? Were you like kind of moderating and things like this? A little bit, yeah. And like doing more, but it was more customer support, like actually talking to people. So I had those two options where it's like I can go into QA, get paid shit. I can get this other job and get paid really decent. And I chose QA because I was like, I want to work in the games industry. So I need to do this path in, in order to get there. And so I want to emphasize the key decisions you made and those kind of sacrifices that you took. Don't let me put any words in your mouth, but kind of seeing the bigger picture and the long term gain, right? Kind of running that marathon to be like, hey, this is what I want. Let me sacrifice for the short term gain now for the long term gain in the future. Yeah, absolutely. That's genius. Way to play the game, Jasenia. Thanks. But yeah, that's essentially what I did. I was like, I need to get in the industry if I need to fight the bullet now and like do this and then I'll get paid later. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I did that. And so I worked on Arkham and Fear 3. And then I got really good at doing bugs. Okay. First off, I need to tell you a story. Oh, please. We're all <laughs> about stories on how to play area. So I do not come from QA background. So this was like the first time I got into QA. It was so overwhelming for me because I had no idea what I was doing. I remember watching all the other testers. They're like doing logging bugs super easily. And I'm like, I don't know what I'm supposed to be doing. So people who think that test QA is so easy, like, oh, you just play a game all day. No, that is wrong. You actually have to figure out how to break the game. And that is actually not as simple. Is there no training, no like manuals, no like people (laughs) to mentor you? Exactly. There was there's like back in the back in the day, like this is the early days. Like there's I had no manual. There was nothing that told me how to game test or anything. So I just kind of jumped in and they hired me because of my like skill set of what I've had in the past that I have for organization, good communication skills, and also I was already internal. Pro gamer. Yeah. And they're like, okay, we'll bring her in and this is a junior level, so it's okay. And luckily, like my boss at the time, he was a really good mentor where I was mm. just like getting very overwhelmed. And I, I said to him, hey, can I just borrow your time? And can you just sit with me? Because I actually don't know what I'm supposed to be doing in order to like test this game. Like, am I just running around here? And then I remember he sat down with me for like 20 minutes. There's no test plan that you're following? In it. There is a test plan, but there were some areas where it was like ad hoc testing as well, where it's like you're just supposed to go play by yourself. And that's the part I was like struggling with where I'm like, I don't know what I'm supposed to be doing. And so that's when he like sat down with me and like ran down the level with me like, this is what I usually check for. And to be fair, you're probably playing like an alpha or beta build of the game, right? There's like yep. super buggy, super unstable, doesn't look as what you'd expect the game to look like. Yeah, because he sat down with me, like walked me through that whole process. I was able to become a really good tester. And then I ended up being the one with the most bugs per day, Damn. which is really cool. And then I got like promoted twice within a year or so. In the off chance that this mentor is listening to this episode, the Jesenia Cisneros episode of Out of Play Area, let's give a shout out. Let's pass the rose on, man, for the mentor taking the time. For you, first of all, for pulling aside and be like, yo, I need help. Right. That's not something that's built into a lot of our DNAs is being able to recognize it. Be like, yo, hold on, man. I don't know what I'm doing. I could use a little bit of help and learning how to ask for the right questions. I want you to shout out this person in the off chance that they're listening. Yeah, his name is Evan McGuire and he's over at Bungie now as the main QA lead. (laughs) Oh, shout out to Evan McGuire. (laughs) Nice. 
And with all of that, I ended up being in charge of regressions. And I became like the point person on our QA team of like working with the lead and like all of that. Like, this is what our process is. I'm doing the triage and I'm assigning the bugs out, working with Rocksteady and their bugs and like back and forth. So when you got promoted, what were the roles? I just got more responsibilities and more pay. <laughs> hey, that's a good way to be. So, so it wasn't like official, like lead, but you unofficial kind of point person. Hey, that, that's a good place to be. I've been in that position a few times yeah. where you just do the job that needs to be done and you're good at rallying people. That's a super valuable skill that it's awesome to hear how you've naturally built it, but also kind of on the job and then see how that evolved into a producer role that's yeah. super interesting mm -hmm. i remember when i was there i was like i really enjoyed doing this at that time i had a project manager also on our team and i remember talking to him and going i want to continue working in the industry and i really like doing this because i like solving problems and figuring all this stuff out however i don't want to be a tester all my life but i want to do something like what you do i don't know what to do and he was like you could be a producer and that was the first time for me that I ever heard the term producer. And I was like, oh, shit. He planted the seed. Yep. But I will give shit. I won't call him out, but I will give shit for him underestimating me. Oh, okay. Hell yeah. Let's air it out. Yeah, because he, I remember he, at that time, he's like, you can do this. I was like, oh, okay, cool. And I remember he's like, if you stay in QA, though, that path to production, like the career path to production from QA is a long way to go. And he's like, it'll be a while. And I'm like, okay, sure, whatever. My next job, after I left that, I went to an indie studio. I became a producer. So <laughs> worked my way up into associate producer. And then I went over to Pokemon. Is this Niantic or the Pokemon Company? The Pokemon Company. I'd love to hear more about that. I have very little context as to how these amazing games get made. Like, I was in there, Pokemon Blue... Uh, Pokemon Silver, Pokemon Sapphire, all those are my Game Boy Color, Game Boy DS. When did you get in and, and how was that like? Yeah, so I started at Pokemon back in 2015. So I was there about for three years before I went over to Minecraft. Mm -hmm. That was really cool experience. I felt like I walked back into the 90s, into my childhood. Because? I loved Pokemon growing up. It was like amazing. And then to go into the office with all the statues, like I, there's statues of Bulbasaur, Pikachu, Charizard, and it's just like, yeah, exactly. It's like amazing. So that is the feel I had when I walked into the office. I was like, oh my God, I can't believe I work here. And it's like so cool. And everyone's like, loves the product that we work on. And it's very family oriented, great work-life balance. Well, that's all the things. Yeah. I mean, like, I don't care who you are. If you're a game developer, you have a little part of your soul that goes out to Nintendo and would love to be able to say that, hey, I had a time as a Nintendo game developer. I will say me personally, because I don't want to take the creds, I did not work on the Game Boy games, like no Nintendo games over there, but I worked on like some other app on the Pokemon side. Oh man, I do miss my discounts. It was really good discounts over there. <laughs> Towards anything. Yeah, Pokemon and also like Nintendo. Dang. <laughs> how, how is it structured out of curiosity? Is it like what you would expect from a development team or what was the, the role? What were you responsible for? So the team structure is a little bit different over there. So for as long as Pokemon's been around, I think now it's like 25 years. Jeez. Yeah. Like mid nineties, early nineties, probably. Yeah. So the main pillar and product for their company is the trading card games. Those are still growing really strong. 
And so when I joined there, there was still no internal game studio developed. And then maybe like a year later, we had an internal game studio. Wait, is that because of what the games are made in Japan or something? Yeah. Okay, that helps me understand better and put some context around it. That's why people forget, don't realize that Pokemon Company is its own company because it's not. Everyone's like, oh, Nintendo. I'm like, no, no, no. The Pokemon Company. But like our sister companies are Nintendo. We have Game Freak and we have Creatures. That's right. Game Freaks. Okay. Okay. Bet. 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 I'm sorry. I was all confused. I should know better. So Pokemon Company is more on the physical games and the trading cards and things like this. Yeah. And they did more of like all the international sales and everything on the U.S. side and coordinated between us and Japan. So think of like the PR, the marketing, like all of that lives there too. And so then we started an internal game studio within Bellevue. And that's when I left the marketing department. And I went over there again because I wanted to get back into games. And our team was maybe like 12 people. It's a really small team. Yeah. But the team structure was really cool. Like I was the main producer on the whole team writing multiple projects. And so I worked on the Pokemon TV app. I helped kind of launch the new app because it, it launched after I left, which is a digital version of trading card. I think it's called a Pokedex or something like that. I forget what the app name is called, but yeah. it, it lets you like keep track of the cards that you actually get. And it just looks cool, kind of like a journal. And then I also worked on the trading card game online version. And so that required a lot of coordination with uh, multiple departments. So yeah, I pretty much kind of built the process for our internal game studio as well. And like figuring out how to have this game studio run within an already established business model. And mm -hmm. so I was the person running back and forth between all the different departments to kind of figure out what the process is with like, what's our process with our localization team? What's our process with marketing? What's our process with business and product development and kind of making sure everyone's talking to each other. And then I'm like working with our business partners across the seas and making sure that I'm helping them with the process and they're following our process. Yeah. If I were to like, actually put the team side that I was managing, it was like over 40 people just because it like, it's a lot of like all these other departments and places that I'm working with and business partners. You are not kidding when you talked about cat herding, right? Because it's one thing when it's your team, your department, but when you have to go cross bridges into these other boroughs or cells or worlds, right? And have these people talk to each other. That's pretty challenging, right? People are used to their own little habits and, and processes. So that's no small feat. I'm curious what you would advise to anybody having to tackle a situation similar to that. Interacting with like multiple departments and stakeholders or like how to advise for like being the bridge, essentially. I think that would be handy. I think that would be helpful. Yeah. So something that helps me, some advice that I'd give is be very personable and don't bullshit people and be transparent. Mm -hmm. like and ask yeah be transparent and be fearless with questions because you have to ask a lot of questions sometimes and sometimes it's intimidating but you have to ask the questions in order to get a better understanding of what you're trying to get at or make sure that you're understanding 100 percent what that person is telling you because as the facilitator making sure you're the bridge between all of these people you have to make you have to under make sure that you understand what everyone is saying so you can deliver a concise message I like that. Okay. So when you say be fearless in your questions, it's more about don't fear 
sounding stupid. Yes. There really are no stupid questions. You have to be able to understand exactly so that you can take that information over to another department to pass on that information, right? Yeah. To, to convey that knowledge to someone else that doesn't know it at all as well. Yeah, absolutely. And like one of my superpowers is that I can talk to anyone. Hey, that's an awesome power. Yeah. And so it's really comes in really handy because it's like one thing that I've always done and I always advise new producers, especially coming in, it's like, don't always talk to people about only tasks Mm. because eventually if that's all you talk to them about, people are going to be like, oh, here she comes again. She's going to ask me like what my status update is on this and that. But if you keep it more more casual. I can empathize. I can empathize. Oh shit, producers hit me up. I know what they want. Exactly. I'm I'm late on the thing. Exactly. And so I always advise new producers to not be that way and be like, bring into the mix your own personal personality. Like it talks to them like a regular person, like, hey, how's your day going? And you'd be surprised at how often tasks and status updates come naturally into the conversation without you even asking. Wow. That's powerful, Jasenia. That's powerful. You set up a mechanism just by being more personable that the information you would normally have to hunt down just comes to you. Yep. And then that way, when you interact with the person, it, it gets to be more fun, more meaningful. More positive. <laughs> more positive. Yeah. As opposed to like, give me the work. Where's the work? I need the exactly. work. Yeah, hey, that is some executive producer level type stuff right there. Thank you. Thank mm-hmm. you. Yeah. And so that's how I got into the games industry and Alphabet Brass Lion. <laughs> Yo, I, I love it. So coming from... An anesthesiologist pursuing biology in college to loving Halo pro gaming, making the move to be like, yo, I'm going to work for Bungie and ends up working for like every damn company out in the Pacific <laughs> Northwest. And now it's going to leave us because she's working for Brass Lion in New York City and she's going to move down to L.A. I see that. Yeah. That is that is an amazing trajectory. I love the fact that the New York City game development scene is growing, is thriving, and is building games and telling stories that I don't want to say can only come from New York, but like makes sense that they're being incubated in New York City, yeah. being the the mecca and the melting pot of so many cultures and immigrants and things like this that it is. I'm a big fan rooting in the background, right? I hope I can get some swag and rep you guys. Oh, absolutely. I'd love to understand or call out any tools that are like your besties or your go-tos or it doesn't matter for what you do, right? It's like, I use whatever, whenever, anything that you would tell people to brush up on if they want to get into this kind of thing. If they want to become a producer, Mm -hmm. I really recommend people signing up for newsletters. I think it's called Game Industry. Game dev industry, you just get daily emails and updates about what's happening in the games industry. And that's something that's really good to do. The game industry got biz? Yeah, that, yeah, that. So that's a really good thing that I, I like to just because if you don't have a lot of time, you can actually see at least at a high level what's happening in the games industry because they give you all the headlines and then you have the option to go in and look, read it a little bit more. So I look at that. I read various articles. I also look at the GDC vault, if there's a way you can get access to that from someone. Yup. Because there's some a lot of good talks. I also recommend looking on YouTube and like other people, producers in the industry, because most of us have websites and sometimes they link to their talks. So listening to them talk. Also recommend getting into like communities and like the Discord, like shout out to Latinx and Gaming Discord. Shout out to Latinx and Gaming. 
come and join us. Like our community is large and thriving. And like, I met a lot of people and that's actually how I found out about Brass Line because someone posted in there like, yo, they're hiring. And then I got a job there. And already I've helped like so many people get a job just by mentoring them within that this course. And I'm like, not to brag, but I'm like super proud of that. <laughs> no, no, yeah, you, let's not understate that. I've gotten like three or four people jobs this year. It's great. And that's kind of the sum of the past 10 years, right? Like I think I'm doing more now than I did before. Yep. And that feels so great to your point. This is kind of addictive and I could see how people A, become recruiters or some sh or mentors because it feels so rewarding to yeah. help people get put on. That's really a big reason why I'm putting this show together is to tell the stories, to help people see that we come from all different walks, shapes, sizes, backgrounds, experiences, right? You have a very unique story just sitting up. So I love the fact that you're here telling it to let people know that, hey, there's no clear one path to get on, but it definitely involves sacrifice. It involves getting out of your shell, talking to people, trying different things and being kind of relentless. Yeah. Keep going, taking opportunities and having a goal. To your point, picking up and moving across the country, right? To be like, yo, this is the thing I want to get into and never stopping. And yeah. now it's going to kind of come full circle because you're connected back to your hometown. So that's beautiful. I know. I, that has also made me kind of teary-eyed when I like joined the team. I'm like, wow, I've gone full circle. It took me like 14 years, well, 11 years in the industry and then full circle. And so it's wild. But yeah, no, like I recommend to people like trying to get in, it's like read up as much as possible, subscribe to that newsletter, know what's happening on in the industry. This is going to sound so cheesy, but Twitter, there's a lot of things that you can just follow on Twitter. Like all the game that people are in there and talking all the time, definitely take, don't take everything as gospel because uh, everyone has opinion. <laughs> yeah, for sure. I mean, I got to connect with you through Twitter, but actually that brings me to a good point is you were nominated through I hope to become a better homie with, but I want to call him a good homie, Juan Vaca. He dropped your name on his episode of the podcast. So I got to ask, how do you know Juan? I know Juan from Latinx and Gaming. So yeah, I met him about back in September, October of last year. And yeah, I saw him randomly on Twitter and he had the Ecuadorian flag. And because... I saw the flag. I followed him. Because I was like, I've never seen anyone from Ecuador before. And so... <laughs> Wait, okay, well, for context, like online or like in gaming? In like... gaming and online. Okay, fair. Boom. Okay, good, 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 good. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, I was like, holy shit, you exist? Like, because I, I haven't seen that since I moved over here. Mm -hmm. And so I got very excited. And then he followed me back. And then I like posted something back in like... September, I was like, hey, I posted a wide net to Twitter. I was like, I want to get more involved in like mentoring and like doing panels and stuff like that because I haven't done it before, but I really want to. And he was like, yo, you should sign up for uh, Unidos Online and do a, yes. a webinar. And so I did. And so there's a YouTube video of me talking about production. Oh, um, snap. I'm going to find this. I'm going to post it in the show notes. And so, yeah, that's how I know Juan. And so we've become homies. He's me, my familia since then. And yeah, I love that crew a lot. Like I, I've gotten to meet so many other wonderful folks in the Latinx community. And I've told them already before, but I'm like, this is the first time in a while that I felt truly at home because I yeah. haven't been able to find a community like this in the gaming industry this whole time. This, yeah, I, I feel like I've been 
siloed and away from everyone. <laughs> Absolutely. I tell them the same thing whenever I, I get a chance to chat with any of those people. It's like, man, where were you guys like 15 right? years ago? You know, this is fantastic and beautiful. Yeah. Now we help people get jobs. If you're ready for the lightning round, we can jump into this thing. All right. Let me uh, stretch. Wait, do I have to shout out also person for the next podcast or don't? <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. That comes at the end. Sorry. Spoiler alert for all you listeners. Spoiler alert. So you don't listen to the show, guys. That's the thing. It's okay. We're going to make her a fan. It's okay. <laughs> okay, let's go. Let's get into this. All right, let's go. What is the last game that you finished? I'm so bad at finishing games nowadays that I like jump in and out all the time. Like right now, I started picking up Bayonetta. And <sighs> oh, that's so good. Yeah, once I like ignore the male gaziness of it, it's a really good game, but it's really hard for me to continue it because of that. Call that out. I mean, be fair to call it out, right? Like we can't give the East Hemisphere developers a pass all the time to do that thing. Yeah. She's a great character. I'm glad she's a Smash Brothers, but we should be able to hold them to a higher standard. I love the combat in Bayonetta mm -hmm. and all of that, but oh my God, I had to stop because it was just like, wait, what? She's naked and her hair is like, what? Okay. I couldn't play anymore. <laughs> I don't even know what the last game I finished. So next question. It was a long time. What's the last book you read? I actually had started reading a new book that I found at this bookstore last week. And it's how to think like a game designer. What is this? I don't know about this book. How's it going? How are you liking it so far? What do you like about it? It's by Justin Gary. He's in the industry as well. He's worked on like World of Warcraft and miniature game and Ascension. So he, he has some creds for sure. But no, so far, I'm really liking it because it's really easy to read also on top of that. And it's just fun. And it's one of those things that it's not necessarily for me. Or like, I want to be a game designer and like, I want to make my first game, you know. But what I find interesting is how what he listens to his book is intersecting with like how I work as a producer. That's what's been interesting for me. So I just started reading that. <laughs> I need to do my homework on this Justin Gary character and check this out. Yeah. So, so far I'm a few chapters in and I'm enjoying it and it's a nice read and it's exciting. And it's just like, oh yeah, this makes sense. And this is how I run my production team as well too. I'm like, oh yeah. So it, I just like seeing the correlation and I always like learning new things and what people are saying, even if it works or it doesn't work. Yeah. What, what type of idea is in there in terms of like running your production team that you found? So one of the things that he mentions in the book is essentially like, okay, you want to make a game, you want to be a game designer, but you get overwhelmed because you have this high level idea of what you want to do as a game. And then he like breaks it down, like start at this level and then break it down into small chunks. That's that upside down pyramid. Yep. So I just kind of like saw that and I checked, like, make sure that you write your goals for what you want to do in the design. Like, yep, that's kind of the, what production does too. Like, what are our goals for this deliverable? What is the goal? Oh, now we make features out of those goals. So I like correlated that like, oh, goals equal features. Like these are what the goals are for this milestone. And these are what the features are. So. Oh, yeah. Okay. So what is the thing that you enjoy the most about the job? That I'm surrounded by black and brown people. <laughs> Hell yeah. What's your favorite part about working from home? My favorite part about working from home is that I don't have to wash my hair every day. <laughs> you have a lot of hair, man. That'll take a while to clean and dry. And also get to wear sweatpants every day. Yes. Amen to that. What is the thing that you miss the most about being in the office? Vibing with people like I am with you right now. I'm a huge extrovert. And so 
I love like shooting the shit with people in person. Virtual, it's a different energy than like in person. Yep. Yeah, that's pretty unanimous across the board. Every time I ask this question, it's been like, yo, the people hanging out, the energy, you know, play testing in person, eating, whatever, things like this. Yeah, because it's all those casual uh, moments and connections that it's easier when you're in person because it's like you're sitting at your desk and then you hear two people having random conversation. You're like, what the fuck are you guys talking about? And then it's just like starts being a stupid conversation about like chicken or whatever. I don't know. How does your job change, if at all, as a result of being kind of like full remote virtual? Doing my job virtually rather than in the office takes a lot more work because what I find myself doing is that I'm in a lot of more meetings just to make sure that we're all aligned on goals and it's a lot more documentation and over communicating more than I would have in the past. Shout out to over communication. That's a thing for sure. Say it seven times. Over communication, over communication, over communication, over communication. Yeah, I was going to end that. Because it's like words on text just read differently than in person. So that's how everything changes. And then you also have to be more prescriptive in what you're saying and what you're telling their team. Yes. And explicit and everything. Like be super clear because you're also missing out on body language. I've been doing this now for a little over a year and it definitely has changed since last year. And I feel like it's more manageable now. You got better. Yeah, I've gotten better at it. And it's like, oh, okay, we can do this remote. That's another thing that's great about Brassline is that we can all work remote permanently if we want. That's a huge perk and a huge recruiting tool. I know a lot of people that would easily take a reduction in pay if they can work remotely all the time. Yeah. And so it's like, oh, I'm going to LA. I'm like, okay, I'm leaving. That's something I've noticed where it's a lot of more talking to people and making sure like I'm following up on people more often because I don't get those natural conversations I would usually get if I'm in the office and I hear someone talking or like I pass them in the hallway. Mm -hmm. Sometimes those hallway conversations is a real thing where it's like you pass them like, oh, how's it going? It's like, oh, shoot, I forgot to ask you. How's this going? And you like sometimes decisions are made in the hallway. Yeah, totally. It's a thing. Yeah. So that's really what's changed from like working in the office versus at home. It's just lots more documentation. And but it's been good. Not bad. (laughs) I figured it out. (laughs) There we go. It was just another problem to solve. And game developers, we're good at solving problems. Yeah. And it's, it's great to hear that this whole work remotely thing, build games remotely, virtually is sustainable. It's real. We can do it. Right. Because I I think a lot of people you would have asked before the whole pandemic. Oh, yeah. Square up and down. Like, no, 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 it can't be done. It's impossible. Don't even try. Yeah, that was always the excuse given to me when I started to like, oh, no, we don't remote's not an option. We can't make games remote. It's like that's a silver lining on those whole pandemic. Like, oh, yep. Told you we can make it. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And, and you know, a lot of indie people have figured it out way long yeah, ago. Way right? longer. Yep. And now the companies are catching up, right? Like AWS, Google, Microsoft, they're all kind of building tools and infrastructure and pipelines to facilitate all this file sharing and cloud gaming and bug reporting and all this. I know a lot of people have been particularly enjoying Google Stadia for the ease of hosting builds on there and testing at scale and things like this. Yeah. What would you do if you weren't doing this? Easy. I'd be a doctor. (laughs) You would go back, finish your medicine degree, go back to helping people, saving people dope. Or I would be a producer in film. Okay. You would take this out of the game industry and into movies. Yeah. Is that why you're moving to Burbank? No, it's not. Okay, just checking. 
And I almost got into that industry already, and then I turned them down. So. <laughs> oh, okay. You had your opportunity. Yeah. Okay. This is where your passions lie. Yeah. But we like to hear that. You know what you know now in 2021. What would you go back and tell yourself 11 years ago when you were first coming into the industry, I guess, doing QA? What's information that you would tell your younger self? I would tell myself to always be my authentic self and stop worrying about what other people think because no matter what you do, right or wrong, people will always have a reason to talk. And that's what you found out at Brass Lion, right? It's like, man, it feels good to be yourself and not spend all that energy, like you said, cold switching and holding back on things. Yeah. So are you guys hiring at Brass Lion? Oh, yes. We are totally hiring. So please, if anyone is listening, please go over to BrassLionEntertainment.com forward slash careers. We are looking for programmers. We need so many programmers, gameplay, audio, network, graphic, build. We're also looking for a principal software programmer, Ooh, engineers. Those, yeah. Those principal roles, those are valuable. Yep. Hell and yeah. we're looking for environment artists as well, too, right now. So those are like our key crucial roles. So please, yes, we are hiring. Come our way. <laughs> I'll put that in the show notes. I was going to ask, is it public knowledge what tool set you guys are on, right? Like, is it something public that people, hey, if you have experience in this tool set, we want to talk to you or does it matter? Yeah. So something that I can say is definitely C++ knowledge mm -hmm. is good. Having some experience in the industry is good because right now it's, I feel like it's more men in senior level roles than more than anything. That is mostly what I can say in terms of like tools. It's like definitely no C++. And then if you have experience with Unreal Engine, that is a bonus. Question for you. What tools, software do you use to do your producery job? The main tool is Excel and PowerPoint. Uh, spreadsheets and spreadsheets PowerPoint. and yep. PowerPoint. But then also I use a combination, especially working remote. I use a combination of Miro board. Mural's great. I've been figuring it out a little bit over the past year. It's like, okay, Mural is really good. And I'm still figuring it out where it's like, it's really good for collaboration and brainstorming because you, that's what you miss in the office is like being all in one physical room together and like looking at a whiteboard together, like writing things down and that sticky notes and mirror board lets me do that. It's essentially for people that don't know, it's a virtual whiteboard. You can have everybody dragging and dropping post-it notes, grouping and categorizing, drawing arrows and circling yeah. things and highlighting things. It's really awesome. Yeah, you can. And there's even templates. You can put a roadmap together in there. You can put a mind map together. Like it has so many different features to choose from. So I use a combination of that. And I also have used tools like Azure DevOps and Jira for task tracking. Jira's popular in these streets for sure. Yeah. So those are mostly the tools, but Excel is always like fell back with like, oh, is there a tool that exists for this? No. All right. I guess I'm going to use Excel. <laughs> yep, yep. The old tricks of the trade. If you like living in spreadsheets, consider a role in producing. Jasenia, we made it. We're Yay. at that point in the show where I would ask if you've had a fun time falling out of the play area. And there is someone who you would like to nominate to fall out of the play area behind you. Who would that individual be? That individual will be Mario Lanao. 
And he is a data analytics person at Google, and it's very gaming adjacent. So I would talk to him. He's awesome, awesome dude. Also, like, met him through Latinx <laughs> gaming. Thank you for that recommendation. Mario, I'm coming at you. That's the beauty of this multi-billion dollar gaming industry is that there's a lot of ways to slice the pie up and there's a lot of critical pieces in here. And data is not going anywhere. And that's a key part of how we build games these days, for better or for worse, right? We have to look at the data and see what players are doing, when they're doing it, how they're doing it. And Google is a key player in that space. And Googlers are pretty special people, so that'd be dope to bring one on. <laughs> yeah, he's he's a special person. <laughs> <laughs> Yo, this is fantastic. Jasenia, thank you so much for coming on. I've had a, a damn blast. I kid you not. It's like reconnecting with a person that I grew up with, you know, riding the seven train, riding the N train Yo, school. Oh <laughs> yeah. Do you have any last words for the listeners out there? Last words. Brass Lion is hiring. If you have any questions, you can follow me on Twitter at Miss Yesenia C. My DMs are open to continue the conversation going. But yeah, everyone, keep doing awesome and never stop learning. I know it's cheesy as it is, but keep doing that. <laughs> Thank you so much. Have a good one. Thanks. I don't give enough credit to producers these days. You see a lot shifting to these PM roles as program and project managers. I still consider them producers. Anybody that saves me time from doing one of the things I'm weakest at, which are time estimates and telling leadership how long to anticipate I'm going to need to spend on working on something. And really, the answer I always want to tell them is I have no clue, but I'm going to make up a number that is way off and adjust it as we go. And it's either going to blow the sprint up or down. All that to say, I'm grateful that they exist so that I don't have to live in Jira or Jazz and other platforms longer than I have to. How did you enjoy the episode? Do you want to learn more about producers and PMs? You know what's apparent in speaking with Jasenia is that this comes natural to her, that she enjoys what she does. And it's infinitely better because she's able to bring her authentic self to work and be around people she can connect with and learn from in her native hometown in New York City. It's a wonderful thing, and I can't wait to see what comes from that studio and team. Please check out the show notes for their careers page and hiring, as well as Yesenia's social media and links to her production webinars and other interviews where she shares her knowledge. On episode 18, debuting September the 27th, we sit down with my good friend Matt Udvari, co-founder and CTO of Aquifer Motion, coming to us from Austin, Texas, where he and I worked together at Midway Austin way back in the day. And his company, Aquifer, is credited on the list of 20 startups to watch last year, as well as Forbes' list of rising startups to watch with diverse founders. We sit down and walk through his journey into and around the video games industry as a game designer at Day One Studios, working on MechWarrior, up through his time at Midway, being a lead designer at Foundation 9, then Total Immersion, and more. Make sure to follow so you don't miss out on that episode. Out of Play Area releases new episodes every other Monday on all your favorite podcasting platforms, as well as YouTube. As always, devs, I'm your host, John Diaz. I'll see you on the next episode. Stay strong, stay true, and stay dangerous. Mega Ran, take them home. Flight attendants, prepare for takeoff. Cap and crew, please take your seats. We are now 
about to enter the out of play area. Yeah. If you can't reach me, I apologize. Since we out of play, I never compromise. John D, NYC, know we got the vibe. Make sure you hit that follow when you hit subscribe. Out of play area podcast. Out of play. Out of play area podcast. We out of play. It's just a little something for the game devs. Stay strong, stay true, and stay true.